Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor here with RUF. Uh, it's great to, great to have you all come out tonight. Um, what week is this in the semester? Is this week eight? Eight? All right. About halfway there. I don't know if it gets better or harder, but we're about halfway there. Um, yeah, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, real quick, I'm going to just plug Westco again. We uh, really, really encourage you to go. I know the timing is not ideal for some of you. Um, the only time that could work for all the schools to come, but it really is a sweet time. If you went uh, two years ago before the pandemic, tell, tell everybody else that really it's a, it's a special time. Uh, well, I'm gonna scholarship everybody to, to where it's 150 bucks. If you need more, talk to me. But 150 bucks for four days on the beach, it's a pretty good deal. Um, it's a great time of, yeah, growing, talking about faith, Jess. What are the dates and like deciding Yes, so the dates are December 28th through January 3rd. That includes drive time. So um, the hard deadline to register is October 28th. Hard deadline. They will not accept anybody after that because that's for the camp. So, or, or that's for the, we don't go to a camp, Psh, the resort center. So, um, yeah, so, so think about it. I'm gonna, we're going to be following up with each of you on that. Uh, also, next week at Large Group, the, uh, if you guys were at Fall Conference, the uh, campus minister for UTEP and his crew are going to come up here next week. So he's going to be teaching us next week from Matthew. Um, so come next week. You can hang out with Eduardo and Haas and all those other people. Um, so that'll be fun. So this week, we are going to press on with our study of um, the heart of the king. Uh, as we've been looking at the, how is Jesus disposed towards you and towards me and towards our campus. And uh, we're going to study tonight what he does, how he calls us to follow him. And so um, I'm, I was thinking this week, as, especially as uh, Instagram crashed and there was this moment where it's like, is Instagram going to have to start over and everybody have no followers? And that was unfortunately not true. But um, <laughs> I was just thinking about followers and I was like, man, that would suck if RUF had to get all new followers. But, and, I, and I was thinking about the simple, just the reality of like followers on our social media things, Snap and Insta, but then also just how many of us tend to have people and ideas or institutions, Twitter, things that we follow. Uh, and tonight, we're going to see Jesus calling us to follow him. In all the ideas, people, things that we can follow today, Jesus calls us to follow him. And what, what's amazing is when Jesus does this, he actually shows us a piece of his heart. He shows us why he's good, kind, gracious, merciful, and loving when he calls us to follow him. Uh, that Jesus, the heart of Jesus is to call and shape followers, what the Bible calls disciples, and to create ministry workers who will shape his church and engage the world. Um, that's discipleship. And so discipleship, we're going to look at what is discipleship. And discipleship is following Jesus when he calls, together welcoming others. Following Jesus when he calls, together welcoming others. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight in that order. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's what we're going to... We're actually going to look at two passages that talk about Jesus calling people to follow him and, uh, and combine them and see what we uh, see, what we see as, as, as both of them. Uh, you have your text in front of you on the piece of paper. And then also, uh, if, if, as I'm talking, if you have questions, shoot me a text. My phone number is on there. And I'll respond to those after, after I'm done up here. So um, I'm going to read these and then uh, we'll look at them. So this, I'll look at the one from Matthew 4 first. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two old other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now skipping to chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, for I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, as we come in tonight um, from such a variety of places, emotionally, spiritually, um, I pray that you would meet us all, especially through your word, that as I speak, that you would be speaking to me and to uh, each person gathered here, equipping us to truly follow you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus when he calls together welcoming others. And so let's look at each of that. Let's look at the first one, following Jesus when he calls. And so first you see here two stories about Jesus calling people to follow him, right? And we'll look at each briefly. Matthew 4, if I flip to that, Matthew 4 is we have uh, four men, fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and uh, they are fishermen, right? They're, they're men of, of, of industry. They work hard. Um, they're like today's version of an ag guy. Um, they're, they're, they, uh, and, and they are doing what they're doing their jobs. They're mending their fishing nets. They're engaged in their work. It's almost like I, I was studying this and I was just thinking it's like they're lost in their phones, you know? Their heads are down. They're, they're tucked away. <laughs> they're not paying attention to what's going on around them. They're stuck in the urgency and the grind of their lives. We've got to fix our nets because we've got to go out and catch fish because we've got to make money. That's, the, that's what they're doing. They're not interested in Jesus. And, and what's interesting is if you think about what their nets were, their nets were their source of financial security. Their nets were their future hope. If we're going to eat tomorrow, we have to mend these nets because we've got to catch fish. Their nets were their present occupation. What am I? I'm a fisherman. I catch fish. And probably their nets were their family lineage. I catch fish because my dad, Zebedee, catches fish. And he caught fish. We come from a family of fish catchers, of fishermen. And so if you kind of combine all those things together, their nets were their future hope, their present occupation, and their family. I mean, what makes us who we are? A lot of that. Like their nets as fishermen, that was their identity. Like that's, that's a big part of who they are. And yet, what does Jesus do? He comes up to them each and says, follow me, follow me. And what happens? Immediately, the text says. Immediately, twice. Not even looking up. They just drop it and they say, we're in. We follow you. We're, we're right there. We follow, and, and so they follow Jesus. And I, and I think, I wonder about that. I was thinking about us. I was thinking about my own heart, how similar I am to these fishermen. We have jobs we have studies, and these things become our source of identity, our source of hope. 
I mean, think of it this way. When you meet a new student on campus or when you're at a barbecue and you meet somebody new, you say, hey, what's your name? What do you do? You meet someone and you say, hey, what's your name? What's your major? We immediately start saying that our identity is what we do. It's a set, it, is, it is who you are. What's your name? And yet, that Jesus, in, 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 he, he, as he issues this radical call to forsake literally everything about who they are, to follow him, he says the same thing to us. This radical call of Jesus to leave everything, even their family hopes, future financial stability, and follow him. We're going to look at that in a little bit more. I want to move on to Matthew. Matthew's even worse. Look at chapter 9 of Matthew. Matthew's lost in his work, but you know what he also is? He's lost in his sin. He's lost in his sin. Matthew is a tax collector. And if you know anything about what went into being a tax collector back in Jesus' day, it, may, it basically means that he's a Roman collaborator. So the Romans had literally invaded Judea. They had colonized it. Literally with all of the baggage, worse baggage than our, I think, our, the baggage we think of colonization. And, and, uh, and so then Matthew is a Jew, but he's collaborating with these colonizing Romans. And not only that is tax collectors were known as just out of control cheaters. As long as they made their cut that they had to give the Rome, they could take as much as they wanted. And so there's reports of tax collectors charging like 30, 40, 50 plus percent, just raking in money. So it's just stealing money and getting very wealthy. And so basically Matthew is like a political trader and a financial cheater. He's like an inside trader with stocks and in bed with the North Korean government. That would be like how we would think of him today. Inside trading and a trader to the North Koreans. Not a popular guy. Not a popular guy. And so he's lost up in his identity of his work, but he's also a sinful person. He is far from God. He is far from Jesus. And yet, what, is, what, is, what does Jesus do? He comes up to him, sitting in his tax booth, lost in his work, and he says, follow me. And what does it say? He rose and followed him. And so combine all these things together. What does it start to tell us? What does it start to show us? Well, there's a sweet truth here, especially when we think about Matthew, that Jesus' call on your and my life is in no way dependent, is in no way contingent on our own righteousness, on how good, how, how, how much merit we bring to the table. Nothing about us predisposes Jesus to call. Jesus looks at, it doesn't look at someone and say, eh, they're in the top 50% or they're in the top 5%. I'll call her. I'll call him. No, Jesus comes to someone who is as bad as a tax collector, the lowest, most despised, most unrighteous person that could be thought of in the society and says, follow me. And I think that's actually amazingly comforting to me and I think it's comforting to you. Because no matter where you are, how you're coming in, lifelong Christian, not sure where you think about God, Jesus can heal you, to switch the metaphors. Jesus can call you. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. What does he say? He says, sorry, verse 12, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And there Jesus uses this idea of a doctor. A good doctor is not someone who, when someone comes into the hospital with stage four cancer, says, oh, you're too far gone. We can't help you. Just go die. No. A good doctor says, this is the place you need to be. Come in. Let's get to work. 
We're going, to work on, we're going to work on healing you. No, the sicker you are, the more you need the doctor. Get in here. We, I will help you. I can help you. And Jesus says, no, the more, the more unwell you are spiritually, the more sinful you are, follow me, and I will start to heal and restore you. Not based on anything you're bringing to the table in your piety, in your family line of walking with God, in how much work you've done this week to follow God. No. Christian, non-Christian, he just says, follow me and I will set you on the path of emotional, social, spiritual healing. And this shows us, this shows us the heart of the king. What is the, Jesus' heart, he, he, he longs to restore you and me in our most broken places. In the place that you don't tell anybody about. The place where you're like, oof, I hope no one finds out about this. The most sinful parts of us, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me and I, we will, let's get to work. Let's start healing. I'm the doctor, the great doctor of your heart, of your soul, of your body. Let's get to work healing the most hurting broken place in your life, in your story. And that's wonderful news. That's Jesus' heart towards you. That's Jesus' heart towards your friends, towards our campus. And and in both of these stories, the story shows us the theology. The story shows us the theology that Jesus came to call sinners to follow him. And and in theology, this means that God initiates our salvation. God is the first mover. He calls you. In all these stories, no one, none of the five people that Jesus calls, and in fact, no place it does, is, is, are they looking for God. No, they're just caught up in their own brokenness, in their own obsessions, their own work, their own identity. Jesus takes the first move. It is because of God that he falls. So Matthew, he's in his tax collecting, Peter with his nets, Jesus, the word of Jesus, he disengages them from themselves and engages them to Jesus. And he does the same thing to us. He disengages us from our own neurotic needs and our own obsessions, our own anxieties, and he engages us to know and follow Jesus. He causes us to leave ourselves, to leave our old priorities, to leave our sins, and to set a new trajectory, a new goal for our lives to follow him. And that Friends, that is discipleship. It's leaving the old things and setting on a new one to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Come what may, I I abandon everything else to follow him. Jesus' word, when he says, follow me, when scriptures speak to us, it has the ability to tear us away from anything that is precious and anything that is debased. The nets were precious to Peter and John. And they, they, this, was the, this is who they were. And Jesus' word says, no, I find something new precious. The, the, Jesus' word has the ability to refocus us away from the thing that is most debased, broken, and sinful about us and to focus us back on Jesus. And for you, Jesus' call to follow him tears you away from what is most precious to you and what is most debasing about you. You see that? That's the heart of the king towards you. And in theology, we call this, this is known as effectual calling. It's an invitation that leads to a decision. Jesus says, follow me. And everyone says, yes, I'm in. Automatically, a person says, yes, I'm in. Jesus calls, they trust. They obey. They follow. 
Jesus calls, when he calls us, we follow. We know that when Jesus calls from other places in Scripture, it means that the Holy Spirit has been working in our hearts, tilling our, our minds, creating new spiritual life where there was spiritual death, creating a desire to know Jesus instead of a hostility to Jesus. So that when Jesus calls, when the gospel is presented to you, to me, we respond and we say, yes, I'm in. I want in on this. And that, that's a gift of His grace. That's the grace of Jesus towards you, is to move towards you in your most debased, in your most distracted place and say, I'm going to make it so that you follow me and you're not, you wouldn't do anything else but follow me. Matthew didn't deserve to be Jesus' follower. Peter didn't deserve it. Tax collectors and, and uh, sinners in chapter 9, they don't deserve Jesus' call. Neither do we. And yet these story pictures, they show us Jesus' gracious, calling heart towards you and towards me to reach out in our sin, in our distraction, and to call us to himself. So these stories of disciple-making, they show us Jesus' heart. Do you see that? They show us Jesus' heart, that Jesus is a spiritual doctor who comes to heal our spiritual disease, which is sin, and to start something new in our lives to follow him to be his disciples. Jesus is the teacher who says, follow me, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to live in a, a, the, the most fulfilling life. I'll teach you how to love God more than you've ever dreamed. I'll teach you how to care for your neighbor in a way that's self-sacrificing, yet also gives you so much back in return. Come, learn from me. It's like we talked about last week. Take my yoke upon you. And so this discipleship, it's disrupting, it's inconvenient, but it's also good. That's what discipleship is. You can't fit discipleship into your schedule. You can't pencil it in between lunch and class. When Jesus calls you, when he calls me, he calls us to reject everything that we used to look for, for meaning, for value, for purpose, and to learn slowly over time that our meaning, value, and purpose are in serving and obeying him. And so it becomes consuming to us. We can't dabble in discipleship. You can't go and be discipled on Thursday night at RUF and then go out on Friday night or Saturday night and do what you will. You can't go and be discipled on Sunday morning and then go and neglect your discipleship with your girlfriend at 9 o'clock on the couch or with your phone when you're alone. You can't go to discipleship when you're meeting with me or with Rachel or with one of your friends and then go back to old patterns and habits of anger and jealousy and gossip and pride. No, Jesus says, follow me. It's, more, it's, it's an all-consuming life of walk with me. Shape your whole orientation of your life, your identity around who I am and how much I love you and what I'm doing in your life and in your world. It's a whole person engagement. So that's our first point, that discipleship is following Jesus when he calls. Second point, together. So if the first part is following is of discipleship is following Jesus together, start following Jesus when he calls, the second is together. And the truth here is that we can't be healthy disciples of Jesus on our own. We cannot be healthy disciples of Jesus. We need and depend on each other to know and follow Jesus. And so many Christians today think that as long as I've just got my content Listen to the sermon online, 
check YouTube sermons out, get my worship. As long as I've got my me and Jesus, that's discipleship. And that's a start. It's a great start. But the rest of the Bible, even here and the rest of Matthew, it never shows. The Bible, I cannot think of a place in the Bible where it shows an individual follower of God walking, continuing in that, and staying in a healthy place spiritually. It just doesn't happen. The Christian life is not meant to be isolated me and Jesus. Jesus calls us out of, a, out of ourselves and into a community of other followers, of other disciples. He starts when he's, right now, as we're studying here, he's, he's building the core of that, which is the apostles. But then he forms the 20, and then he forms the 70, and the 500, and then eventually the whole church and us. People here gathered today are now the next generation of followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just call individuals. He calls us into a community together to study Jesus. And, and Paul describes this, uh, this, this group of followers as a body. And I love that imagery. You kinesiology majors, you understand what, what Paul is saying here. when he says, hey, the body can't operate independently from, it, from itself. Like ligaments need muscles, which need nerves, which needs a circulatory system. In the same way... We need layers of spiritual support in our lives, social-emotional support. I'll be specific. I'm not enough for your spiritual life. I'm not enough for your spiritual life. You can't meet with me, you can't meet with your pastor once or twice a month and check the box and say, I'm being discipled. You need multiple outputs and inputs. You need a church. You need friends. You need older Christians. You need younger Christians. It's a whole team. A couple of weeks ago, well, a couple of months ago, actually, Elon Musk said something really interesting. He said, uh, he said, college is for fun and to show you that you know how to do your chores, but it's not for learning. He says, you can learn, any, he says, you can learn anything you want, you, you, anything you need to know, you can learn on Wikipedia. And I was like, eh, he might have a point. Wikipedia is pretty big. But also, the reality is, if you're going to be professional or proficient in anything, None of us have the diligence or the intelligence or the capacity to do that on our own. And even if you did, you could come up to a job and say, hey, I've been schooled in Wikipedia, and they're going to be like, you are not going to be a rocket scientist. You are not going to be a surgeon. We need the community, the togetherness of the college environment to best equip us to do what, we're, what we want to do. You need the community of professors, of classmates, of TAs, the environment that college creates, the togetherness that it creates to train you to do what you want to do. Yeah, you could pull it off. You could pull it off on Wikipedia and YouTube, but to learn it better and faster, you need the college community. And the exact same way is in discipleship. You can pull it off on your own, but if you're going to be healthy and growing and maturing in following Jesus, you need all the resources all the resources that Jesus provides. And so here's the point. You need a community of disciples to be a healthy disciple. Do you have that? Do you have that going on in your life? Do you have a church? Do you have older people, older than me? Do you have younger people who are discipling you? And so that brings us actually to an interesting kind of attached point and I, and I want to explain maybe something that, that's distinct about what, what discipleship looks like in RUF. Uh, we don't have formal discipleship relationships in RUF. I, maybe you've noticed that. And by that I mean we don't have like an upperclassman who's discipling a lowerclassman or anything like that. 
Um, and we do that intentionally. We do that for, for very specific reason. And, and, well, a couple of reasons. One is I think it can set up an unhealthy power dynamic. It can set up this system where uh, one person has spiritual power over another person. I, that just, I don't think that happens very much in scripture. It, at least if it does, it's through the church. It's mediated through the church and not through a sophomore or a junior. <laughs> um, and so, it, yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's a big reason why. I know, um, second of all, is that Jesus is the disciple. He is he, the one who, who trains us. He's the one that we all communally follow together. He is the rabbi, the Jewish word for teacher. He's the disciple. And so we are all together following him. So even when I'm meeting with you, I wouldn't even say I'm discipling you. I would say that I'm like, hey, let's go together, you and me, to the, to the great master, to the teacher, and see what he has to say. Let's learn from him. That's the goal that as a community we learn and study from Jesus. And lastly, discipleship is not just like an eight-week program that you can say, well, I did eight weeks of meeting and now we're done. I guess I'm discipled now. <laughs> no, discipleship is a lifelong process. One of the books that I've, it's in my book bag that I was going to show tonight is a book by an old pastor named Eugene Peterson. He calls Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. Disciple, and so he, he, he makes this great point of that discipleship is constant. It's never done. We are constantly in the process of learning to follow Jesus better. Long obedience in the same direction. So our discipleship, it, it, it's unique. Look at how Jesus disciples people. Look, compare John 3 to John 4. John 3, he meets with Nicodemus and he just kind of blows him out of the water academically and intellectually. Then one chapter later, he goes to a woman at the well and he meets her in very concrete, very low terms. I am the living water. So our discipleship today should minister to the unique individual needs of a person. So when Jesus disciples us, he welcomes us as a community, this community perhaps for you, to sit around and talk about who is Jesus? How do I follow him better? How do we follow him better? I'm not opposed to spiritual guidance. I'm not opposed to mentorship. Uh, Titus 2 describes that kind of thing. But that's why the church is so important. That's why you need the church in your life. Because in Titus 2, he says, older men, older women, walk with those who are younger. The church offers the godly men and women who have been Christians longer than any of us have been alive to sit at their feet and say, hey, help me know who Jesus is. Help me follow Jesus. So what does this mean practically? It means that you and I have a call to follow Jesus together. Together, it means that we are called to exhort each other more and more to follow Jesus. It means that, that you need to have multiple inputs, large groups, small groups, individual, different layers of people who are helping you to know Jesus. So find someone in RUF in, in your life and say, hey, let's follow Jesus together. Let's get together and study the word together and see how it shows us Jesus. Let's get together and figure out how do we pray to Jesus better. Let's get together and figure out how Jesus is shaping my heart towards money, towards my sexuality, towards the other political party. That's discipleship. Two books I recommend on this, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and the other one is uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That one's a tougher read, um, but it's amazing. It's great. So first point, 
Discipleship is following Jesus when he calls together. Last point, welcoming others. Welcoming others. Lastly, just as Jesus invites us to follow him, he calls us to invite others to follow him. Chapter 4, what does he say? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So right off the bat, he connects following him with outreach, with missions, with evangelism. And it's so and he shows it right off the bat. Our discipleship is intimately connected with sharing our faith, evangelism, and missions. It's so interesting. Jesus does not say, "Follow me, and I will make you free from all your sins," or "I will follow me, and I will satisfy all of your spiritual and emotional needs." He doesn't say, "Follow me, and I will give you lots of success in your fishing." No, he says, "Follow me, and I will make you people who share your faith well with others." And all of that's wonderfully true. He will do all those things. But the goal and purpose of discipleship is making more disciples, is welcoming other people into Jesus' gracious heart to say, follow me. Discipleship is not about your personal experience with God, not even your personal salvation. Discipleship ultimately has the goal of welcoming others to be disciples. In chapter 9, Jesus actually models that. He does the exact same thing. He calls Matthew. He says, follow me. And then he goes himself and sits with the most outrageous group of people that, he could, that, that, that Matthew could piece together. Tax collectors, and he says, and sinners. <clears throat> he, he, Matthew, he calls Matthew, and then he goes to parties and peoples that, that, that no pious follower of Jesus would normally associate, associate with. And so both of these calls in chapter 4 and chapter 9, they have a, a, a missions and evangelism goal. It's particularly in chapter 9, Jesus, he, he frees us from guilt by association with the, the broken and sinful people in our world. No, our salvation, our calling to follow Jesus is a calling to, to go back into the mess, to wade back in, to become the light in the midst of a, just go forward to chapter 5 of Matthew, and he says, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, You're the light of the world. Let your light shine so that others will come and follow me too. <clears throat> and I think there's a real application for this in New Mexico State. Because on a Friday night in a small town of New Mexico, there's not a lot to do but do exactly what Jesus is describing in chapter 9. Partying. <laughs> right? So there's, there's a huge opportunity here for us to figure out how do we make disciples, how do we be involved, connected with a whole campus that's lonely, sad, scared, obsessed, sinning. And we go into that and say, follow Jesus. My wife does this so, so well. My wife is an artist, and she's connected with a local art scene in, in Las Cruces. And the art scene, they get together and they throw parties. And these parties are nuts, y'all. They're crazy, like tons of alcohol, drugs, like hookup. They're like in their 40s, and they're still going nuts. And Caroline senses that she has to be in these spaces. And she goes to these parties, and she'll have a drink or two, but she's like, and, and it's amazing because people are just like, why are you, like, they're just, they start asking her, why is your life not miserable? And she gets to say, because I follow Jesus. 
And she's actually had, starting to have some amazing conversations with people when they're at their most vulnerable, high, drunk, whatever, of saying, come follow the person who frees you from all of this. And, and yet, while she's in it, she's earning their trust. She's slowly but surely being able to point them to Jesus. And y'all, we are called to the same thing. Of course, you know, you can't let your evangelistic drive go to lead you to compromise and get drunk and, you know, do that. But you are free to associate with people doing that. Look at, I mean, look at what Jesus does. He, he scandalizes the pious religious people here. You are free to befriend, to pray with the world, and to say, hey, come follow Jesus. Not just, I mean, and that's not just at parties. Jesus has placed non-Christians in your life that in, in his providence, only you can minister to them. Isn't, isn't that amazing? There are people in your life that only you can minister to. Why? Well, I'll say right off the bat, I can't. Friends, we are in a time of being Christians when pastors are not trusted. This is the first time in several hundred years, I would argue since Constantine, where being a pastor is actually a liability. People look at me and they don't trust me anymore. Why? Well, because pastors have been hurting a lot of people the last few years. You can just read the news about the Catholic Church, about the Baptist Church, about the Presbyterian Church. Pastors are not, they're just, we, we dropped the ball. And so people look at me and they say, we don't want anything to do with you. We don't trust you. So in a sense, y'all are going to be more equipped, more handled to, to say, hey, come follow Jesus than I will. That's, the point is that you can evangelize to your friends. You can ask them to follow Jesus probably better than I can. And so RUF, we can't be a holy huddle. We can't be a theologically reformed safe space. And I fear that sometimes that's what we've become. We have to be an outward-facing community that says, I'm learning to follow Jesus. Get in on this with me. Come follow Jesus with me. We must witness to Jesus' gracious work to call us to him and welcome and exhort others to, to do this. Even the people who seem to have gone too far, who are far out there. How do I share my faith? Well, let's talk about it. I don't know yet. I know that Jesus has called, gifted, and equipped each of you to share your faith uniquely. And I love nothing more than to sit down and talk with each of you, try and figure out how do you do this with the person that you're thinking of right now. And actually, I've been thinking about doing a, a seminar maybe this semester or next semester on evangelism, so stay tuned. So what does this text show us? It shows us that Jesus calls us to follow him together, welcoming others. It starts with Jesus' gracious and loving call towards you and me to simply follow him. And then to start to walk with others in that and then to start welcoming others into that. To give up our daily grind and our sin and to follow him. To do it with other people and then to welcome others. I ask you, how are you, how are you all doing in that? Maybe some of you need to follow Jesus for the first time. Maybe some of you need to learn to follow Jesus with others better. And maybe some of you need to learn how to follow Jesus welcoming others to follow him. How are you doing in that? Let this be both encouraging of what Jesus has done in your life and challenging to say, how can I follow Jesus more? That's the heart of the king. His grace towards you, leading you to graciously call others to follow Jesus. Let me pray. Lord in heaven, thanks for this, uh, thanks for this word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would indeed help us to rightly follow you. Thanks for your grace and your mercy towards us. May we faithfully follow you all our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.